Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening, Maverick family. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Hello, new viewers from all over the place, wherever you might be tonight. If you are uh, joining us from any Western country tonight, uh, well, this show is for you because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a fair bit tonight, just off the top of my head about being backed into a corner here in the West. Going to talk about a no-win scenario. It brings to mind for me the Kobayashi Maru Star Trek. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Probably the best Star Trek film ever made. I believe it was written by Nick Myers. And it's very relevant. I think it 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 <laughs> it deals with a lot of the uh challenges that we are facing as a society right now. We're damned if we do, damned if we don't. It's like we can't we can't make a right choice. And it all ties into colonialism. It ties into our history, which is being rewritten. It ties into patriotism. And of course, it ties into everything going on in Israel and Palestine. The war there and the war in Ukraine, everything that's going on with Russia, everything that is taking us closer and closer to a possible third world war, kinetic third world war. And it's absolutely relevant to the current version of the third world war which is being waged right now through information warfare and i'm gonna show you how we're only half awake that's like i'm gonna try to let's try to get people to open the other eye Show you how we're being lied to by political forces, political entities on all sides. They want your mind. You think you don't count. You think your vote doesn't count. It does. You count. You have the power. You. <laughs> They're afraid of you. They're afraid of all of us, and they need us. They need each and every one of us. And if they can get us all to comply, 
and to collectivize. Conform. That's what they want. Conformity. I'm here to say, don't give it to them. Express yourself. Be who you are. Tonight's show is <laughs> before warned. A bit of an op-ed, an opinion editorial. I'm gonna going to be inserting my opinion from time to time. Because I love my country. I love the United States. I love the West. I love free speech. I love free media. So I got involved in journalism at a very young age. I don't like the assault that I'm seeing on it. This relentless global assault on our freedoms. It's not just coming from within our own country. It's coming from external forces and from within. But we're still here. Don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how we got through World War II and came out alive. I don't know how freedom managed to survive. But somehow it's alive and kicking. Still there. I can hear the heartbeat. I can hear the breaths. It's breathing. It's still there. But man, it's under pressure. So many people want to tear it apart, tear it down, rip it apart at the seams. Maybe even you. Probably. People don't understand what's going on. And no wonder we are being subjected to a giant psyop. We are being manipulated, programmed. Yeah. And I know you know that, but the thing is, you never really know who's doing it to you. So I'm going to try and shed some light on that tonight. It's out there, the information, to lead you down the right paths, but not down a damn rabbit hole. Try and stay real. I'll be right back, and we'll continue our quest for truth together. Because the truth will set us free. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals. defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, free speech. Donate.
at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow may be too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. I'm back. Where shall we begin tonight? How about with a news story that's directly related to all the other news stories that I'm going to talk about tonight that are also directly related to everything that I teed up during the intro for the show? How about we start with this story about Donald Trump? Here it is. Oh, this is maybe not. Yeah, that's the right one. Okay. Donald Trump compared Trump compares political opponents to vermin who he will root out alarming historians. This is from ABC news. Experts noted parallels to dictators in the past, which his campaign dismissed. So let's go through this briefly. What is this all about? Well, it says here, former President Donald Trump vowed this weekend to root out his political opponents, who he said live like vermin, as he warned supporters that America's greatest threats come from within. Extreme rhetoric that echoes the words of fascist dictators like Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, experts and Trump's critics said. Hmm. Well, okay, let's continue, shall we? A Trump campaign spokesman dismissed the backlash to his speech at a Veterans Day rally in New Hampshire. But some historians said the parallels were alarming. Says to call your opponent vermin, to dehumanize them, is not to only open the door, but to walk through the door toward the most ghastly kinds of crimes. Writer and historian John Meacham said on MSNBC's Morning Joe. Hmm. Well, politics is a blood sport, folks. And it has become nastier and nastier in recent years. And yes, that that kind of language does dehumanize your opponent. No question about it. Is it justified? Well, it's a blood sport. I don't know. I'm not sure that Trump is referring to things in exactly the same way as the media here is suggesting he is. But, you know, I see rhetoric on the other side. 
from the Biden regime that uh, is equally toxic, equally as inflammatory. Remember that speech that Biden gave with the blood red background? It made it look like he was addressing America from the bowels of hell. And what did he talk about? Domestic terrorism. You. (laughs) Yeah. He's afraid of you. Afraid of me. I'm not even there. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. White domestic terrorists. That's what he's afraid of. And there was a has been a clear effort made, I think, to demonize people on, for lack of a better description, because everybody talks about it in this way. I don't subscribe to it, but people on the right. So that's what uh, that's what they're talking about here with Trump. And there's this new book, I guess, that's out. Um, I don't don't even know if I should play this because I don't know if we're allowed to play this on YouTube. I should maybe stay away from it. Um, At some point, we will probably need to dump off YouTube because of the subject matter that I'm going to touch on tonight. In any event... Let's we'll, we'll roll a little bit of this, okay? Because it's ABC, it's mainstream. So, I guess if they're going to ban us, they can ban ABC too, right? Okay, here we go. Here's this report from ABC News. Let's bring it up, and we are learning more now about former. President Trump's departure from the White House months after he left office. Trump apparently became fixated on the idea that he could return to the Oval Office before the next election. Yeah, you heard that right, (laughs) that he could return to office before an election, even though he'd lost the last one. This is just part of what's in the new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, from our chief Washington correspondent, Jonathan Carl, and resident Trump expert. So let's bring him in. There's the book cover, Jonathan. Uh, so, this is a wow. The, yeah. the, this one that he was that he was talking about. Reinstall me, reinstall me as president. Kick the guy who's in the White House out. I'm going to get back in. How, was that for real? And how would such a thing work? Yeah, I mean, we know we've talked ad nauseum, and the January 6th committee has looked into it. Jack Smith has looked into it. His efforts to overturn the election going into January 6th of 2021. But what I found out is that he became obsessed with this idea that even after he left the White House, uh, he thought that a Biden could literally be ejected, uh, the the election nullified and him reinstalled. I had first seen this theory kind of in the far reaches of the of of the Web and QAnon associated places, conspiracy theorists, this idea uh, that. That, that Trump was going to be reinstated. I mean, you may remember that at one point, Mike Lindell, uh, the My Pillow guy who, who pushed so many conspiracy theories, actually came out and said it was going to happen on August 13th. It was very specific. 
August 13th came and went. And then he said, it's going to happen in September. And then it's going to happen in Thanksgiving. Nobody paid attention because it was Mike Lindell. It was out there in, in nowhere's land. But I found out by talking to a number of people very close to Trump uh, that he was entirely fixated on the idea, thought it really could happen. Uh, I recount in the book uh, a, a situation where he pressured one of his most stalwart supporters, a congressman named Mo Brooks from Alabama, a guy that wore body armor uh, to the rally on January 6th outside the White House. Uh, and he asked him to go out and publicly call for it. And Mo Brooks said, no, he couldn't do it. It was unconstitutional. And, um, and, and Trump, as a result, cut ties with him. And Mo Brooks is now a former member of Congress. Uh, he's been exiled from the Republican Party because Trump uh, split from him. Uh, really uh, a, a, an outlandish idea. And, and, and just, to, Terry, you have to really read the full account to understand. But, but basically... He was watching that. Remember the cyber ninjas audit in Arizona where they were recounting every ballot by hand, looking to see if there was Chinese bamboo uh, in the ballots to show that stuff had been trucked in from China. And it ended up turning out that there, there was no fraud in Arizona. But he thought he was watching that that on closed circuit TV, I found out. Virtually OK, every day so tracking it. obviously this guy doesn't like Trump. There is some stuff to take away from all of that, though, and that is, I think, the most important thing is that there is a an ongoing effort by, I would say, political forces on multiple sides to undermine confidence and trust in public institutions. Now, I have my views on what happened with that election. I'm sure you have views probably very much in alignment with mine, too. Uh, that in itself contributes to what I'm talking about here right now. Bad things happen. People lose trust and confidence in their system. That's largely what is kind of going on in our society. And I've been saying for a number of nights now that the reason we see, I, I'm certain we are having difficulty making forward progress, gaining ground and, and winning is because we are not really fighting the right enemy. One of the, uh, have, you, have you heard of Saul Alinsky? Rules for Radicals, who says, as one of the rules, whatever you're doing, blame it on your opponent. Whatever you do, blame on your opponent. So if you're, I don't know, torching cars in the streets after you've set them on fire, and even if you've, even if you've been seen doing it, you say, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was it was them or it was you. You did it. Why do I bring this up? Yuri Bezmenov. Let's start there. Let's backtrack to the 1980s. Former KGB agent defected, came to North America, lived in Canada and the United States and gave a series of lectures and interviews in the 80s. 
exposing the techniques used by, back then, the former Soviet Union to subvert society. And Yuri Bezmenov revealed that the outside political forces that are seeking to destroy Western countries, Western civilizations, especially the United States, they're, they're playing a long game. They've been, they were at it for decades using information warfare, psychological techniques, even back then. Yuri Bezmenov probably does the very best job I've, I've come across of explaining how this stuff works. And even though it's about what he talked about was back in the 1980s, everything he says, all of the techniques, if you, once you learn what they are, you can see that they're being employed today, but they're being employed using this tool that we're on right now, social media, the internet, and it amplifies the impact. It, it makes it much more effective and the techniques they're using now are more sophisticated than ever, but the objectives, the, the techniques are all still based on the same things that Yuri Bezmenov spoke of back in the 1980s. And I'm not pointing my finger specifically or only, I should say, at Russia. Every country is involved in this. And the problem I think that we are running into here in North America is that part of the PSYOP is to convince people that all of the problems that we're experiencing are the result of our institutions and our governments. What we're not picking up on is that the people who run our governments, the bureaucrats and some of the politicians, yes, they are either corrupted or they're being misdirected through misinformation and information warfare themselves. Because you need to remember that the information warfare is coming at us, not from one side, but from multiple sides. And they're doing it to all of us, whether you're on the left or the right. They're driving people crazy. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. But first, let's listen to this clip from Yuri Bezmenov back in the 1980s. I need to find it. Here we go. Okay. This is um, titled Understanding the Political Scenario of India, Canada, Japan, China, USA, France, Russia, etc. And this, uh, again, is Yuri Bezmenov from the 1980s. And he talks about subversion. How it's done. It's not to say that we don't have problems within our government. We certainly do. But we need to understand that a lot of this is a lot of these problems are being amplified by outside political forces, outside governments who are identifying problems, not necessarily creating the problem themselves, but identifying the problems and then throwing kerosene on the fire and then fanning the flames to create as much disruption 
as possible within our society. Clever for you, you know, with the good financing, please leave us, we don't need your vacuum cleaner. If they don't leave, they shoot them. Okay, he's talking about Japan here, but just give it just a moment. He'll, he'll get to the point that I'm trying values to Values intact. You were not able to subvert Japan. You cannot subvert Soviet Union because the borders are closed. The media is censored by the government. The population is controlled by the KGB and internal police. With all the beautiful, glossy pictures of Time magazine and Magazine America, which is published by by the uh, American Empire. Now, what he said there is very important. You need to understand that North America, Canada, the United States, Britain, Western society is vulnerable. It's, it's one of its greatest vulnerabilities is free speech. Well, at the same time, it's certainly one of our greatest strengths. So it's a double-edged sword. What Yuri Bezmenov is pointing out here is that in a free and open society, a free, open, democratic society, we're vulnerable to propaganda from outside forces. We let it in. In the former Soviet Union, there was heavy-duty censorship. You couldn't subvert them in the same way as easily because it was difficult, if not impossible, to get messaging out to the people because they had such strict censorship laws in place. Let him continue. Embassy in Moscow. You cannot subvert Soviet citizens because the magazine never reaches Soviet citizens. It's collected from the newsstands and thrown to garbage can. Subversion can be only successful when the initiator, the actor, the, act, the agent of subversion has a responsive target. It's a two-way traffic. United States is a receptive target of subversion. Hang on here. There's no response similar to that one from United States to the Soviet Union. It stops halfway somewhere. It never reaches here. The theory of subversion goes all the way back 2,500 years ago. The first human being who formulated the tactics of subversion was a Chinese philosopher by the name of Sun Tzu. To 2,500 years B.C. He was an advisor for several imperial courts in, in ancient China. And he said, after long meditation, that to implement, foreign, uh, to implement state policy in a warlike manner, it's the most counterproductive, barbaric, and inefficient to fight on a battlefield. You know, the war is continuation of state policy, right? So if you want successfully to implement your state policy and you start fighting, this is the most idiotic way to do it. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all. 
but to subvert anything of value in the country of your enemy until such time that the perception of reality of your enemy is screwed up to such an extent that he does not perceive you as an enemy and that your system, your civilization and your ambitions look to your enemy as an alternative, if not desirable, then at least visible. Better red than dead. That's the ultimate purpose, the final stage of subversion, after which you can simply take your enemy without a single shot being fired, if the subversion is successful. This is basically what subversion is. As you see, not a single mentioning of blowing up bridges. Of course, Sanze didn't know about blowing up bridges. Maybe there were not that many bridges at that time. <laughs> but he, pre, he's, he teed this up previously in this video by saying that, of course, when people think about subversion, the first thing you think about is people trying to overthrow a government by blowing up a bridge or picking up a gun and getting violent or doing something like that. But no, he's, he's pointing out here that in, in modern warfare, and actually this goes back 2,000 years, they're using modern techniques today, though, to wage war using information. The basics of subversion is being taught to every student of KGB school in USSR and to officers of, of military academies. I'm not sure if the same author is included in the list of reading for American officers, to say nothing about ordinary students of political science. I had difficulty to find the translation of Sanze in, in the library of of a university in Toronto and later on here in, in Los Angeles. But it's a, it's a book which is not available. It is forced to every student in USSR. Every student who is, who is taught to be dealing further in, in, in his future career with foreigners. What subversion is? Basically, it consists of four periods time-wise. If we start from here, and go this way, time, right? This is the beginning point. The first stage of subversion is the process which is called basically demoralization. It says for itself what it is. It takes from, um, say, 15 to 20 years to demoralize a society. Why, why 15 or 20 years? 15 to 20 this years. is the time sufficient to educate one generation of students or children. One generation, one lifetime span of a person, a human being, which is dedicated to study, to shaping up the outlook, ideology, personality. No more, no less. Usually it takes from 15 to 20 years. What it includes? It includes influencing or by various methods, infiltration, uh, propaganda methods, direct contacts, doesn't really matter. I will describe them later. <laughs> of various areas where public opinion is formulated or shaped, religion, educational system, social life, administration, 
law enforcement system, military, of course, and labor and employer relations, economy, okay? Five areas. Uh, I will not write them down because we will not have enough space. I'm going to make a bold statement and say that doing a TEDx. Okay, so pull this down. Bring a little bit more. Sometimes here. when I describe all the methods, uh, students ask me a question. Are you sure this is the result of the Soviet influence? Not necessarily. You see, the tactic of subversion about which I'm talking is similar to the martial art, the Japanese martial art. If, you're, if some of you are familiar with that tactic, probably you will remember that if an enemy is bigger and heavier than yourself, it would be very painful to resist his direct strike. If a heavier person wants to strike me in the face, it would be very naive and counterproductive to stop his blow. The Chinese and Japanese judo art tells us what to do. First to avoid the strike, then to grab the fist and continue his movement in the direction where it was before, right? Until the enemy crashes in the wall. You see? So what happens here? The target country obviously does something wrong. If it's a free democratic society, there are many different movements within the society. There obviously in every society, there are people who are against the society. They may be simple criminals, ideologically in disagreement with the, with the state policy, conscientious enemies, simply psychotic personalities who are against anything, right? And finally, there are a small group of agents of a foreign nation, bought, subverted, recruited, right? The moment all these movements will be directed in one direction, right? This is the time to catch that movement and to continue it until the movement forces the whole society into collapse, into crisis, right? So that's exactly the martial art tactic. We don't stop an enemy. We let him go. We help him to go in the direction we want them to go, okay? So on the stage of demoralization, obviously there are tendencies in each society, in each country, which are going to opposite direction from the basic moral values and principles. To take advantage of these movements, to capitalize on them, is the main purpose of the originator of subversion. So we have religion, we have education, we have uh, social life, we have power structure, we have labor relations, uh, unions, and finally we have law and order. Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, these are the areas of application of subversion. What it means exactly, <clears throat> in case of religion, destroy it, ridicule it, replace it with various sects, cults, which bring people's attention, faith, whether it is naive, primitive, doesn't really matter. As long as the basically accepted religious dogma is being slowly eroded, and taken away from the supreme purpose of religion to keep people in touch with, with the supreme being, 
That serves the purpose. I ask you this. Have we seen these things happening? I say yes, for quite some time. What have we seen over the last two or three years? We've seen churches being burned in Canada, many of them. And who really has the power? Is it, is it the people that we're told have privilege? When those churches were being burned, there was some coverage, but you and I both know that a lot of that information was being suppressed. The people affected directly in those communities were even afraid to talk about it with the media for fear of pushback, repercussions. This is a story from the Toronto Sun back in July of 2021, talking about churches being burned. Why were they being burned? A variety of reasons. This was the result of the stories surrounding grave sites um, at residential schools in Canada. And, uh, you know, there's controversy surrounding that, which we don't need to get into the uh, nitty gritty of that tonight, but it is absolutely at the center of a lot of this. And why did all of this happen? Well, for one reason or another. Um, well, let me just highlight this for you. The 1619 Project. What is that? That is a, that is from the work of, so many tabs open, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I'll show you who she is if you're not familiar. People even now are saying, huh, well, they can't understand, you know, why people are taking the positions they're taking, especially on this issue of Israel-Palestine, Hamas. And it can really be tied directly back to this, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Sherry Hannah-Jones, Wikipedia says here, is an American investigative journalist known for her coverage of civil rights in the United States. She joined the New York Times hmm, as a staff writer in April 2015, was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2017, and won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2020 for her work on the 1619 Project. Hannah Jones is the inaugural Night Chair in Race and Journalism at the Harvard University School of Communications, where she also founded the Center for Journalism and Democracy. Hannah Jones, born in Waterloo, Iowa, talks about her career working for the New York Times, which I would argue in many, many respects is a publication, a newspaper that for decades has worked against the best interests of the United States of America. And here it talks about the 1619 project in 2019 
Hannah Jones launched a project to fundamentally change the way slavery in the United States was viewed. In other words, let's rewrite history. Time for the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia, according to her. Hannah Jones produced a series of articles for a special issue of the New York Times Magazine titled The 1619 Project. This, folks, formed the foundation for much of what followed and flowed from critical race theory. This was a flashpoint in the culture wars. This was a full-on assault on history. This rewrote, this was Orwellian. Rewarded for it, she was. Pay the price for it, we are. Today. All of us. Indeed, that piece of work for which she was so robustly rewarded is set off, I would say, a nuclear bomb within American culture, Western culture, Western society that has done, in my opinion, more damage to to the West than anything else in history. And she won a Pulitzer for it. It's full of lies. Misinformation, that's just a lie. I believe in free speech. I hold it dear. And I, you know, even if I disagree with someone, I'll defend their right to have another opinion on something or to convey information in a different way. But I submit to you tonight that there is a difference between free speech and malicious speech, weaponized speech. There's a difference between advertising and fraud. You can advertise a car for sale. But if you do a bait and switch, it's fraud. If you advertise a Ford Mustang, a brand new one, and then substitute a 1972 Ford Pinto with no engine in it, when the guy comes to pick up the car after purchasing it, or when it's delivered, it's fraud. And that, that's the equivalent of malicious speech and rewritten history when it's not truthful. In my view, what she's peddling is not true. There may be some facts in there, but it's deception. And we are paying the price for it today. 
there is another view on what the 1619 project has done. And here's, uh, here's the alternative point of view from the Heritage Foundation. You know, the 1619 project asserts that the United States didn't get its beginning in 1776, that it really was started in 1619 with the first slaves arriving. So the entire country, the history, of course, everything is something America is need. It's something we need to be ashamed of, really, is what it comes down to. So it tears at the fabric of the nation. Here's the alternative point of view, which doesn't get nearly as much play these days. There are those who claim America's true founding was in the year 1619, when African slaves were forced across the Middle Passage to come to the New World. They claim that America is rooted in oppression and racism. These are the claims of the 1619 Project. But the true founding of America happened in 1776, when a group of rebels fought for independence from the British and built America with one idea in mind, freedom for all. Our founding fathers saw the future, a world without slavery. But America did not start out this way, as some were not free. Sadly for America, some refused to embrace the idea of freedom for all. They thwarted laws prohibiting the importation of slaves, laws intended to end slavery in America once and for all, and would have certainly preserved the barbaric institution of slavery forever. A civil war was declared. Over 300,000 white men fought alongside 36,000 of their black brothers, and all made the ultimate sacrifice, giving their lives to end slavery. Proponents of the 1619 Project refused to acknowledge this history. After the Civil War, America remained a divided nation, flawed, but now free to all. Reconstruction laid the framework for what many Blacks might have considered an unimaginable future, and it began with over 15,000 Blacks being elected to office. By the turn of the 20th century, America began to experience an awakening as black culture was sewn in the fabric of the nation. The lines began to blur between black and white. Black culture slowly infused with American culture. Still, the struggle continued. Hate groups like the KKK continued oppressing blacks. Laws were passed to prevent blacks from gaining the true American dream. Undaunted, America marched steadfastly toward its great vision, a vision enshrined in the nation's constitution. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. The dream mentioned by Reverend King would eventually be embraced by all. The entire country lauded sports legends like Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis to destroy the idea of Hitler's white nationalism. Many other blacks destroyed racist and bigoted stereotypes as black engineers, scientists, doctors, judges, scholars, authors, playwrights, poets, and entertainers became mainstream to the American culture. Why would anyone want to destroy such a legacy? 
a legacy of overcoming adversity to form one nation under God, one unhyphenated America. Which America would you choose? Which Canada? Which Britain? It seems the choice is before us now. Indeed, we need to make a decision. I keep sitting here night after night saying we should not take a side in this Israel-Palestine conflict. I still sort of believe that. I shouldn't say sort of. I, I do believe it. Because it isn't about taking a side in the conflict. It's about holding people accountable for their actions. It's about just seeing and knowing what's right and what's wrong. Same thing here. What's true? What isn't? What's good? What's bad? What leads to peace? What leads to conflict? I'll tell you this, the 1619 Project leads to conflict, friction, and yes, even violence. We've seen it in our streets. It's not very patriotic at all. It has been subversive. It's a problem. It dismisses some history, select, it selects certain aspects of history that are negative, it amplifies that negativity, and in some cases just outright rewrites some of the history and creates actual lies in my opinion. And I think the facts support that. And who is doing this? Is it just the author of the 1619 Project? I submit to you that it is not. It's a lot of people, some of them domestic, some of them foreign, working against the West to tear it down. Just as Yuri Bezmenov said, you have a mix of people within our society, whether they're criminals, anarchists, political agitators, people who just like to go and protest no matter what. Doesn't even really matter what cause it is. They'll just flip and flop. And you're seeing a lot of that right now. One day it's protesting with Black Lives Matter. The next day, they're out in the streets supporting Hamas. <laughs> and am I just making stuff up or just speculating on foreign influence? No. 
let me show you that there is actual military intelligence um, consulting firms that provide government and political entities with information about this kind of information warfare. Here is one example of that kind of intelligence explained in this report from the Criminal Justice Network. Headline, QAnon's conspiracy theories stoked by China-Russia. This according to a terrorism expert. Says here, substantial foreign influence has been identified in posts containing material peddling conspiracies fostered by the QAnon movement, according to a former U.S. counterterrorism official. From January to December 2020, Russia accounted for 44% of the QAnon categorized posts on Facebook attributed to foreign groups. This from Jason Blazakis, who told an online seminar sponsored last week by the Center on Terrorism at John Jay College. It says posts sponsored by China have sharply spiked since the beginning of this year. This is 2020 from 42% in 2020 to 58% of the QAnon material posted by foreign groups from January 1st to February 28th, 2021, said Blazakis, who served as director of the Counterterrorism Finance and Designations Office in the Bureau of Counterterrorism at the U.S. Department of State between 2008 and 2018. Other foreign sponsors in 2020 included Iran, 13%, Saudi Arabia, 1%. When asked to explain the high foreign influence, Blazakis said the motive in China, Russia, and the other countries is to destabilize the U.S., attacking the U.S., also distracts their populations from internal strains and challenges. The conspiracy theories appear to resonate with a solid core of believers in the United States. Blazakis, now a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies referred to a, a recent series of surveys of 15,000 Americans in which about 22% of the respondents said they believed what QAnon was peddling and another 30% said they were fence-sitting. The remainder rejected QAnon beliefs. So I know that there are some of you out there who subscribe to the QAnon narrative. But you need to be aware that these foreign governments have infiltrated the movement. How have they done that? Simply with information warfare. And they've got the budget. It is disruptive. QAnon is disruptive. The If you listen to, and I do, immerse myself in, in a lot of QAnon material so that I understand what's going on and I have the broad picture. Unlike the author of that new book, which simply tries to discredit Trump, and the author is saying that he's he's noticed some of it over there, way over there, but he doesn't really know too much about it. 
Well, I know a fair bit about it because I've been down the rabbit holes. And it's pretty clear to me that there is infiltration from outside political entities who are steering the information in various directions. And you now, again, amplifying, throwing fuel on the fire, creating disinformation within the QAnon movement. It's distorted everything. And a lot of it is actually driving people crazy. Some of it doesn't make sense. Why Q? Because it's organized, it's growing, it's getting a lot of traction. It's disruptive as all heck to the fabric of society because of the questions already surrounding the 2016 election. So why not ramp that up? Why not take advantage of that if you are an enemy of the United States? Doesn't matter if it's true or if it isn't. If it's disruptive, help the narrative along. Throw kerosene on the QAnon fire and watch it burn. And then add other information in there by creating online videos to help it. And then even amplify it and take it into even areas that are completely nuts. In the end, the objective is to destroy, to disrupt not just the nation state of the United States, but also you, the very people carrying the message forward. It's pretty sick and twisted, but it is being done even as we speak. And it is not being done just to people within the QAnon movement. No, this is being done to people in all kinds of different, shall we call them, categories? And how convenient is that? Because our own people, our, or maybe they all have been directly, they have been directly involved, I think, in ramping up identity politics, dividing us, and then helping to feed the narratives that fuel the division. Our own government's doing it. Outside entities are doing it. People who simply within our own society who want power are doing it. And all the time, because people really like to try to think of things in terms of black and white, up and down, good versus evil. They can't see the subtleties. They can't see the grays. Everything's a gray area, folks. Life, reality, is not black and white. Everything is gray. Everything. It's all designed to subvert Professor John Mearsheimer said when the Ukraine war broke out that Putin's objective was not really to take over Ukraine. There were certain areas 
he knew were areas that he wanted to protect. He wanted to protect the people in Donetsk, the people who had been shelled, bombed by the Ukrainians and had been for you know years. And I, how many people died? What, 14,000, 20,000 Russian-speaking Ukrainians. He wanted to protect those areas. That was his primary objective. But taking over the whole country? No. John Mearsheimer pointed out something early in the conflict that really resonated with me. He said, what he can't control, if the conflict can't be resolved, he will simply wreck it. Makes sense. Make the country that is a threat to you on your doorstep, render it dysfunctional inoperable eliminate the threat by making it difficult if not impossible for them to function properly to have a fully functioning economy society you can't function you can't you're you're no longer a threat if you can't have it and control it if it becomes a threat you wreck it and it's a whole lot easier to wreck something than try to control it in the end. Why would he take over all of Ukraine and try to control it? It becomes something then you have to manage. And if you have a population of people that are resistant to you being there, then it becomes a problem, a burden, not an asset. So just wreck it. Do you really think that China wants to come in here with a bunch of soldiers and try to control us by force or Russia or Iran? No. But they sure want that funding cut off, don't they? To Ukraine, who can, who can blame them? And they don't want the funding going to Israel either. So, wreck it. And you don't wreck something just by going after people in the QAnon movement. No, you take that information and you throw kerosene on that. And when I say throw kerosene on that fire, I mean, you just help it. You just help it along. And then even create more craziness within it to radicalize some of the people who are the most vulnerable psychologically. But you're also doing it to the left. You're doing it to people on the other side. Here's what I'm talking about. You think that if I'm going to play this for you, and if you think that this person is sane, and this is a person that I would say automatically, it tells me that this person is on the left side of the political spectrum. You tell me that this person hasn't been subjected to some sort of crazy mind control, okay, or something that has driven this person right over the edge. There's nothing normal about what I'm about to show you. Not one damn thing. And this is on the other side. They're doing it to everybody.
pig makeup and a pig nose rolling around in mud on the floor in the bathroom. What's being done to people is cruel. It's cruel. The gunman in Colorado it was a story from uh, October 31st. Here it is. I'll show you again. You tell me, is this not something that's got to be related to mental illness? And probably in the same vein as what I'm talking about tonight. Man kills himself instead of carrying out U.S. amusement park shooting. So this guy goes there heavily armed. Talks about going into caves. Writes on a washroom wall, I am not a killer. In my view, this guy had been driven insane and was it's in, there was so much internal conflict, didn't want to kill people, but something was triggering this person. And he ended up killing himself at Glenwood Caverns Adventure Park. This is not normal. This isn't an issue of gun control. This is mental illness. This is somebody being triggered. This is dark. And there's a lot of this going on. Adrian S. Bureau, Lori, had some pretty extensive coverage on Adrian S. Bureau. This is the guy who showed up at that RFK Jr. event out in California, armed. RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Note the name. It's like the original conspiracy theory, the John F. Kennedy assassination. It attracts people from the QAnon movement. RFK Jr. also, like Trump, attracts people from QAnon just because of his name. You don't think that outside political interests aren't interested in that? So too is the CIA and CSIS. 
that who is the real villain? Well, it seems like everybody wants to tear down our government. Tear down the United States, tear down Canada. Everybody I talk to, everything I hear, all the blame is laid at the feet of our government, at the feet of the CIA, at the feet of CSIS in Canada, at the feet of Justin Trudeau. But Trudeau is just a player. He's a problem. Because his policies, the things that he has done, have not served the country. It hasn't served the people. So yes, he has to go. But he will go. But the people who want to tear it all down can't seem to wrap their heads around the fact that once he's gone, the problem will persist. And it's not the system. The people telling you that it's the system, that the system is the problem. They're part of the problem. They are either traitors to the country or they've been subverted themselves through this psychological warfare or they're just being misinformed and they're too stupid in many cases to realize that it has happened to them or they're so uneducated that when they have no grounding in history, when they have no grounding in civics, when they don't understand how the system works at all, it's pretty easy for someone to come along and feed them a line and tell them that your government is just a corporation. It's a lie. It is just a bald-faced lie. And that is the entry point for so many people into the rabbit hole that takes them down, 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 down. And it is a disservice that is being done to people across our nations. Canada is a sovereign state. The federal government is not just a corporation. That's why we have an army. It is a sovereign government with crown corporations that allow it to do business on an equal footing. It actually, those crown corporations are there so that you actually have a fighting chance in court or in contract with those corporations to enter into agreements to do things like if you are a company, pave roads, or even as a citizen, an individual citizen, if you're a company to pave roads, or if you're an individual citizen, then they, you can engage with the government on a, on a with those crown corporations through them. I can't get into all of the nitty gritty on this. I can only tell you that the Constitution of Canada is real and the Constitution of the United States is also very real. It's a real thing. I'm holding the copy of it right here. And people who tell you that it's just a corporation are really just telling you that the government is not legitimate. And that is the, a huge part of the problem in all of this. Because there's a grain of truth in it, but it's misleading. 
and it's malicious. And it's all designed to undermine your confidence, your trust in all government institutions, including police, including the guy who works down at the water treatment plant, all the bureaucrats, everything. It's all designed to make you want to just throw the whole system out, tear it all down. And yet these people, they really never, ever tell you what's really going to come to us on the other side. Isn't it interesting how the people who are most upset about the culture wars, identity politics, all of the stuff that they see coming at us from the neoliberal woke left, the cultural Marxists, those people who are most upset about it are over here. They're saying those people are trying to tear the system down. While over here, the, you know, the people who are upset about it, what do they want to do? They want to tear the system down. Isn't that strange? They want to get rid of the government. They want all the politicians gone. Get them all out of there. Completely eliminate the system. It's not working. Your vote doesn't count. Democracy is a, an illusion, they say. It seems we can't win. We're in a no-win scenario. If we go with the neoliberal woke side, they're destroying the entire country. They've fundamentally changed everything. They've corrupted everything, so it's hopeless. If we go with the people on the other side, they think that it's all captured. There's no hope. Everything is, your vote doesn't count. The only solution is to tear the system down. Everybody wants to tear the system down. Isn't that weird? They both want the same thing. And then what comes out on the other side? Well, the people on the right, not really telling us, the people on the neoliberal woke side, they sort of already have kind of a thing going where it seems like they kind of have what they want because they're working toward this globalist degrowth, global neo-fascistic, communistic, authoritarian, one world government where we don't have any democracy because the countries are being de-democratized through globalization. We're ending up in the same place with both sides. So it's like a no-win scenario. And it gets worse. Because what is all of this predicated on? Colonialism. What's called to, to decolonialize the West, the world. It's it it doesn't even make sense, really. Because every Western country, every European country, how far deep, how far do you want to go with all of that? Show me a country that hasn't had its population displaced or altered the demographics through history at some point. And how far back do you want to go? Well, 1619, that's pretty far back. Goes back even further, 2,000 years. Hmm. This is a, this is a big problem and very disruptive these stories these tales that are being spun these days
And it all ties right into this Israel-Palestine conflict. Colonization. Same argument from nation to nation to nation to nation. And it's getting people out into the streets to protest like heck. Douglas Murray. Academic. Smart guy. Certainly one of the world's thought leaders when it comes to politics, culture. He's rejecting this anti-colonialism. And I, I do too. Now he's taking a pretty hard, I shouldn't say hard, but he's coming down on the side of Israel in this conflict that we are going through right now. And I totally understand it. I'm trying not to pick a political side in it. He has. Because he's rejecting this anti-colonialism ideology that flows right from that 1619 project. The whole idea is that basically the West, we're all colonizers. It all comes from the British monarchy, the British Empire. Over hundreds and hundreds of years staking claims all over the world as explorers on sailing vessels went forth and discovered, well, the new world, the new world. The new world at the time, today, we're being told through various narratives that it's actually the old world because they're rewriting our history. Douglas Murray rejecting that because all of that leads to shame. It's designed to make you ashamed of your country. It rejects patriotism. It makes you ashamed of yourself. It's something that forces us all to become self-destructive. kind of insane in itself is it really much of a leap to go from accepting and internalizing the atrocities of centuries of oppression and blaming yourself for that well Society also heaps the guilt on you for that and makes you atone for those sins, the sins of people that came hundreds and hundreds and centuries before you. And in some cases, in more recent times as well. But before you were born, things that you had nothing to do with directly. Oh, but you reap the benefits today because you're privileged. And the equity that was built up over time 
from our forefathers who built the nations, built the West. You benefit from that, so you must pay. But, but the anti-colonizations, the people who want to decolonize everything, they want to take it to extremes. They want, <laughs> that's, that's saying it lightly, they want us all to leave. They want to decolonize the United States. They want to decolonize Israel. This will not end well if we continue to let this ideology dominate discussion and the political the politics of today identity politics here's douglas murray on the carolyn glick show what i just saw in israel was terrifying and i see it happening here too you know our our police can't go into a lot of different places in our cities we had priests being beheaded in churches you know this is we've had so much terrorism here and it's all coming from islamic uh, jihadists I'm, we're just gonna we're done you know if if you if you even remotely support jihad we're gonna we're gonna throw you out well of course what would happen well, would you, how long would it take for him to be killed i mean what would i mean that's what i would do because um i think that's what you have to do i think that you you can't tolerate this um you can't tolerate uh, terrorism and this is what unfortunately france france has suffered so much in recent and I admire the French Republic hugely. I admire its, uh, its grit, its ability to get through things that I think many other societies would not. I mean, the assassination of everyone from your most pro prominent secularists at Charlie Hebdo to a priest saying mass at the altar in Rouen is a, is a pretty comprehensive cross-section of society to take out just right there. And the um, Bastille Day The Bastille Day, uh, the uh, Bataclan, uh, the Judicial the, the Stadium, the... the, 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 the um, everywhere but it's to say the i see i see um in london the other day these horrible people standing on the london underground chanting for intifada and i look and i think we've had a taste of intifada exactly trains like this were blown up in 2005 right. by suicide bombers we had intifada so what would when we had intifada when when this horrible young man of libyan descent at the age of 22 goes into the ariana grande concert at Manchester Arena in 2017 and blows up 23 young women for going to a pop club. We've had a taste of this. We don't want any more of that. I, I, I beg European leaders to, to, to recognize that at some point they have to say that. We've had enough of that taste. And if you want more of that, you have to go. We imprison you or you have to leave. And Macron, the problem that he has is, you know, they, he banned he banned protests at the beginning of war. He really went down. Protests right. happen. Now, what does that tell you? You're losing control of the streets or you've lost control of the streets. Same thing in Britain. Um, somebody I know went over to the Metropolitan Police the other day in Trafalgar Square, one of the protests, and said, how can I report a hate crime? And the officer said, uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, and he said, because there's a great, big, great big hate crime happening over there. Why don't you arrest them all? And the officer of the Metropolitan Police said, we're outnumbered. Now, if that is their attitude we just have so much hell coming our way because 
we can't have that as our attitude. It can't be that we just play this who's the biggest thug game because that can spiral in any direction. But uh, yeah, I, you know, you and I have written about this for years. Other people have, and you know, you see things happen and you think maybe this will shift opinion and, you know, you discover that we're wildly able to absorb utter atrocities on a regular basis and memory hold them. You know, it's 18 months since a British MP was, was massacred in his constituency office in Britain by an Islamist. And we have, this was, this was one, MPs do not get assassinated very often in the UK, thank God. And this is highly unusual and it's already forgotten about and his colleagues, their debate in his memory a couple of days later, memory hold the, they said, they, they talked about him as if he died of natural causes. Well, I've said many times, they've actually, they all let down their colleague. They didn't honor him. They let him down. They should have said, we need to face up to the ideology that killed him. So is it cowardice? There's a lot of cowardice. There's a lot of fear around, a lot of fear in the atmosphere. But, you know, I think that people are going to have to accept that, you know, as many people have said before, you have to man up, straighten your back, get ready, and don't die on your knees. You know, it was really interesting. I was at, I think I've told this story before, I don't know. Um, after 9-11, I was on one of the first flights out to the States, and I found my way, made my way to Washington. And I was sitting with an old friend at a bar. And it was just like a week or so after 9-11, we're in an Irish pub. And all of these uh, men are talking and they're saying, uh, one of them, they, they start talking about how the Israelis got it right, da, da, da. And I wanted to say something. My, my friend said to me, shh, be quiet. And I said, why? Look, they're pro-Azra. Look, they're standing there. And he said, shh. So I waited. And then the leader said, oh, but those Jews... And then he started in and attacking Israel. And I, I don't even remember what it was that he said, but it was just this raging anti-Semitic thing. And then everybody who had stood up and said, Israel has it right, uh, just said, oh, okay. And I said, whoa, good thing I listened to you. And, you know, we're looking now and we're seeing that the people standing up to the jihadists on the street in, in, uh, in England, and in Paris are on, are on the far right, you know, I mean, I don't know, far right, I don't even know, I'm a far right, so you're a far, like anybody who's now on the left is a far right. I'm, I'm, I'm a total um, centrist. Um, and I, I'm I think I'm a leftist. A, and I'm a centrist, I'm a centrist compared to what's going to come if they don't address this, because, um, I mean, first of all, you, you can't have this situation where, you know, Doubtless, there were some far right people who turned up, but there were also just patriotic British well, people who turned up. And I just, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't see why there should be this double standard of every British patriot who turns up must be a far right thug, and every Hamas supporter is a peacenik. Is a peaceful support, peaceful person. I don't, I don't accept it. Well, you shouldn't because it's a lie. But but the thing is, is that I'm wondering. You know, I saw this BBC report that said that there's going to be a pro-Israel demonstration in. Harris, I don't know, next Sunday, sometime soon. And that uh, Melanchon, the head of the oh. left party, said he would definitely not come. Of course not. No. And Marine Le Pen said she's definitely coming. And But they don't want Le Pen. Who, I don't know who they is, and I don't know what one. They won't want Le Pen. Well, she wants to come. Of anyway, course. But it's a classic European dilemma. Right. So the, the, here's the question that I wanted to ask you. Is this a bear hug 
from the right? I mean, how how do you look at the? They understand that there is a connection between Israel's fate and the fate of France, the fate of England, the fate of, I don't know, Holland or wherever have you, but or Germany with the IFD and and all the. Who are these people? I mean, are we supposed to be as frightened of them as we are, or, or, or frightened of them? I mean, how? I do mean, you even I'm look at I'm it? frightened from, from every direction. I dislike intensely the Vichyite strain that remains in a bit of French politics. I would want to be nowhere near it. It's not my politics. Uh, I feel the same with some of the other noxious strains that still exist on parts of the the right and the far right in Europe. In America, it's getting stronger, actually. Under getting, the... Yeah, there's a whiff of it now in America. Um, I, I dislike this intensely. This is, this is not my politics. Um, but Can I anybody would... other than these people save these well, nation states of Europe from then the Islamists? Then, as you say, it's this question of, you know, would the Jews of France be happy to put their future in the hands of Marine Le Pen? They didn't think so. They didn't vote for her. No. And, um, and then there are others. I mean, like, I, um, I've slightly given up on this, but for, for recent years, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of politicians from across Europe, partly after the strange death of Europe, the became bestseller and came out in translation all across Europe. I would always go again to every country whenever translation came out and meet political leaders and uh, I'm probably the only person who's met this number of European politicians without being paid to have to do so. <laughs> and I've done it because I'm interested. Uh, and it's really tricky. Country after country, it's really tricky. Like Italy, you know, it's tricky. You know, Maloney comes out of a movement in Italy that was uh, Mussolini adjacent. It was Mussolini um, admiring. Uh, she's obviously moved. Do you know exactly where she's moved? No. I mean, I've had rows with her. Um, and Matteo Salvini, who was the interior minister in Italy. Um, you know, I did an event with him and uh, Dori Gold and others at the Italian Senate a few years ago condemning anti-Semitism and, you know, and, and all that. And I felt confident that Matteo Salvini is not an anti-Semite, but um, all of this shifts all the time. And I... Like those Irish guys in the pub. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, there's one that really worries me, which I mean, there's enough, I think, trust between us and the nuance in, in the people watching to understand this point. And it's a, because it's a tricky point to make. But I do notice one form of anti-Semitism rising on the right, which comes along in the following form. And it is, I got a lot of this after the strange death of Europe came out, um, is Israel has closed borders understands the importance of very, very carefully um, curated migration. Uh, yet, Jewish groups in the West tend to be pro-open pro borders, pro-mass pro migration. And I, I find this a genuinely terrifying crossroads because that, that, I mean, you know, you hear it all the time yeah, in America. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's bad. It's bad. It's it's almost certain that any Jewish group in America, in order to keep its liberal credentials, will be talking about the importance of open borders or, you know, in bringing in the dispossessed of the world. And it only needs somebody to say that doesn't seem to be what Israel's doing to grow a form of noxious new anti-Semitism on the right. And I fear that coming. And I have 
I have said that to people and um, I don't see many people listening, but I'll keep saying it anyway. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I just want to end this by talking about um, faith, really. And the first time that I saw you was during the, I think the first time we met, I don't remember the circumstances. Maybe we were at a conference together. I don't remember. But you came to Israel with Ayan Hersiali around somewhere between 2000 and 2002, about the same time that Yoshka Fisher made the, that indelible impression on me with his demography issues. Um, and you guys came, and I think at that time, Ayan had written Infidelity. Okay, so... And it was an amazing book. Douglas Murray and Glick, they're wrestling with whether the West is dying, whether we are dying, if our society is dying. Are we self-destructing? And if so, why? Our search for answers will continue after this. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. So what do we have in our communities today? We still have some peace, some order, and some functional but not necessarily good government. And in the United States, I think we still have some freedom. And a little bit in Canada, too. And how do I know we still have some free speech? Because, because of the chaos. I had a conversation about this recently with uh, someone who said to me, you know, Back in the 1950s, there was a lot less mental illness 
and society was maybe even better off because there was no social media and professional journalists through the mainstream media essentially vetted and even imposed a kind of censorship on everything that we consumed through mass media and even information that came from the white house was censored news was censored and approved really before it was distributed for public consumption and so it was put to me that we were probably better off because everyone back then sort of agreed on what the truth was and i thought i thought a lot about that i thought i've thought about that very thing before that conversation i've thought about about it more since can't say i agree because it's the chaos that is still giving me hope and this is why i defend the system right now if you have an alternative point of view even if you have a point of view like i do that maybe is not uh not good for the government the governing party you're allowed to express yourself I can sit here and say Justin Trudeau is the worst prime minister in Canadian history. Police will not show up at my door. I will not be taken to jail. I will not be incarcerated. I am proof of that because I've said that many times while sitting in this chair. However, we are seeing a rising amount of censorship. And I thought about why. Why are we seeing these new laws imposed to restrict movement, to even restrict some aspects of protest and censorship laws and regulations on social media designed to limit further our rights to free speech it's because the government is afraid to some degree it's also happening because we have some corrupt politicians and bureaucrats who do i think enjoy uh, asserting authoritarianism over people but more to the point in canada and the united states you're getting this also because the government is afraid because they can see that there are outside political forces inserting their influence into areas of pro into problem areas in order to disrupt our society. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with this new technology. Anytime you get some sort of new technology, The, the, the people in power at the time, all through history, have 
tried to control it. They've had to learn, relearn old lessons on issues like free speech. And we relitigate all of these discussions. When the radio was invented, a lot of people thought it was a, like a devil's box. And it was uh, satanic in itself, the technology. And I think it was in Saudi Arabia where, at the time, there were people opposed to the radio. They didn't want it. They wanted it banned. So what he did, the leader of Saudi Arabia at the time, if I remember the story correctly, he had the those who were asking for the radio to be banned to come in and into his palace or whatever it was he had at the time. And uh, he had arranged, he said, well, let me hear this, this radio that you speak of. And so he had prearranged to have someone read religious script over the radio at the time that this meeting took place. So he turned the radio on and it was religious programming. And he said, well, if that's what's coming from the radio, then this can't be the work of the devil. So the radio was not banned. But it's just an example of how people are afraid of technology, afraid of new things. Government is afraid of social media. They're afraid of outside influence. And they are afraid of protests very afraid of everything going on. So they're responding in authoritarian ways, becoming <laughs> the very monster that they say they are not. And on the other side, on our side, the freedom side, if you want to call it that, I think some of us have been traveling down dark roads that way too, by making choices that have turned us into, or in the process of, it's a process of turning us into the very things they've, that we've been accused of becoming. Simply because we make mistakes and don't see any other way out. So when the government sees an external threat on the information warfare front, they respond with censorship. And then we all suffer. Censorship because they're trying to insulate us, protect us, block the information from getting to us, information that they see as disruptive. And then we point our fingers at them and say, well, they're to blame. And yes, they are. And in some cases, you see, because nobody spends more money on propaganda and advertising than our own federal governments in order to manipulate our minds. And so we automatically assume that all of this stuff is coming from our government and that they're controlling the information flow through censorship, because they have their own agenda in mind, which they do, but they're also responding to external security threats, which we don't understand and they don't even really talk about. And when they do, we dismiss it because we say, well, it's really just the CIA. It ceases. It's Trudeau. But we, I'm trying to explain to everyone that the problem is more complex than that. There is, There are internal problems, but the real threat is also outside the country. 
and it works. It gets people out into the streets. If you think these crowds that we're seeing all through the Western world, these protests, huge protests, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian primarily, and now some counter-protests on the Israeli side, but not nearly on the same scale. But these pro-Hamas protests, you think these are just organic? Do they just happen on their own? With instantly thousands and thousands, if not millions of Palestinian flags have been made available to protesters and the signs they're carrying in many cases are professionally made. Come on. Look at this stuff critically. Look at this protest in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. You're telling me that all these people just came out just on a, on a, on a, by chance? No, this had to be coordinated somehow. This is done through social media. It's advertising. You have to let people, you have to let them know when, and you need to let them know where. So there's an obvious campaign afoot in order to get all these people out, wouldn't you say? Look at that. Look at the size of that crowd. You're telling me that that the people just, what, they phoned each other to find out when and where? Do you know how hard it is to get, <laughs> get a few people together for a meeting? And they got this going on. This is not organic. Not at all. Look at the size of that. That's Toronto. And these are happening all over Western countries. I'm not even sitting here in judgment of whether, you know, you're in, in this particular instance discussing this. The point is these things are being coordinated. And they're using essentially marketing tactics through social media to get people out who, well, I've been trying to tell you who, who does it benefit? Does it really benefit our government to create such disruption in the streets that it threatens the very existence of our government? Is it really in the best interests of the government to create such disruption that it might actually result in an overthrow of the government or the system being torn down and then they all lose their positions and might even be tried? <laughs> no, it doesn't benefit Trudeau to have all that going on in the streets. Now, I would say that he's helped fuel it because he's corrupt in many ways. But he doesn't want to take it so far that he gets dragged out of his office and ousted from power. And a lot of this stuff is directed at him, man. So I'm just telling you that it's more complicated than that. I'm not saying he's not, it shouldn't be held responsible for a lot of this because 
the government has fueled this because they've taken their own agendas too far. They've pushed too far. But I would submit to you that they are being manipulated too by the people above them at the World Economic Forum, the globalists. They're pulling the strings and telling them what to do. But then there are also other disruptive forces in play across the board. And they're manipulating all of us too. It's happening all the way around. And that's really the objective, isn't it? Like, like Professor Mearsheimer said about Ukraine, if Putin can't have control of the entire country, he'll just control what he can and wreck the rest. The objective here is not to control the country at this point. It is simply to disrupt and maybe even destroy from within. As Yuri Bezmenov pointed out, they don't send in soldiers. They don't need to. It's the art of war warfare, the modern art of warfare, information warfare, where they win without firing a single shot. Who's they? We never fully know, do we? We just know that there is chaos in the streets. Chaos, like we saw out in California, where that Jewish man, Paul Kessler, was killed when he went out to counter-protest against a pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas demonstration. There he is on the ground in that clip right there. You can see it. Blurred out. Elderly Jewish man died in a clash with pro-Palestinian protesters who was mourned this week as a symbol of strength and growing anti-Semitic hate. Paul Kessler had been protecting his long-held belief that Jewish people have the right to live and prosper without harassment or fear on a suburban Los Angeles corner that fateful Sunday when he fell to the ground and hit his head after being struck, apparently, by someone with a megaphone, a pro-Palestinian protester. And now... And there he is carrying an Israeli flag. We've talked about this previously. And this is what happens when you bring oil and water together. You have a bunch of protesters over here and then now counter protesters over there. They knew there was going to be a pro-Palestine protest. So upset, they organized a counter-protest that involved Paul Kessler. He goes out there, he gets into a confrontation with someone on the pro-Palestine side, and he's struck, he falls, hits his head on the ground, he's dead. Now being held up as, I would say, a martyr for the pro-Israel side. This only inflames things even more. Why do I feel like there is someone... Why do I know there's someone sitting somewhere in the shadows laughing? And that's not an anti-Semitic remark that I just made. I just know. I can see it. I can smell it. Someone's laughing. Laughing at both sides, at all of us. 
you don't want violence, you don't want escalation, I say don't engage. They know enough, whether it's our government or another government, they know enough not to directly engage unless absolutely necessary in a kinetic way, like in kinetic warfare. They do it with information warfare. They get people out into the streets to disrupt. They get people out into the streets to fight. And people do it willingly. And sometimes it is organic to some degree. It's the organic nature of it that makes it so effective. All they need to do is start rolling that snowball down the hill. It gets bigger and bigger and gains more and more and more, 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 more momentum. And you can't really tell who's behind it. Well, there's that giant protest in Toronto where the <clears throat> protest in California where Paul Kester was killed. And it reminds me so much of what we've seen in the past with things like you know, the Nazi rallies in World War II with Hitler. Those, my goodness. Those rallies with Hitler, those were huge. At Nuremberg, were they just organic? I see the people in the streets right now, and it reminds me so much of that. And I never, in my, I never thought in my wildest dreams I would be sitting here in 2023 talking about Nazism. Nazis, fascism as an actual political movement within our own countries here in the West, with people embracing fascism, Nazism, even resurrecting and reconstituting the swastika on flags and actual Nazi symbols, which they're <laughs> saying, oh, it's not really, it's not really a Nazi symbol. It's not real. It's it's a First Nations thing. And, uh, horse crap. Where's it all coming from? I'm telling you right now. I've been telling you for the past two hours. And it's driving people nuts. People are doing crazy things. It's it's not just one thing. It's it's this campaign that has been waged against the West for now decades. Yuri Bezmenov says it takes 15 to 20 years, right, to subvert a generation and turn them essentially into mind-controlled zombies who become soldiers, internal enemies of the state, if you will, directed through this campaign by external political forces and political forces within our own countries, because there are people here who do want to subvert the government. It's not just external political forces. There are people who want power and they will deceive, mislead, outright lie, just like the sitting government will. In order to get people to take actions that benefit them turning you, me, all of us into their foot soldiers. And then we're told that everything that we've been told is a lie. 
all your life. The people telling you that, I would be highly, highly suspicious of them. I am. In fact, I'll tell you this. I think the people who sit there and tell us that everything we've been told is a lie are liars. Everything you've ever been told is a lie? And yet you're still upset when they burn a church, aren't you? I think we should be. You know, when it comes right down to it, Christians have been persecuted a whole heck of a lot through history, too. The Romans used to feed the Christians to the lions. And who was it that ended slavery? Ask Thomas Sowell, great scholar. Another thought leader of our time. Well, it was us. We ended slavery. The American Civil War. A lot of Americans died. Canada, the Underground Railroad, fugitive slaves, settled here. Canada welcomed them in. We have communities here that were established because of the Underground Railroad. Are we really that evil? Should I really be that ashamed of that history? Should I be ashamed of the Underground Railroad? Were we perfect? No. Did we have racism? Yes. Do we still have it today? Sure do today. Didn't seem to be as much of a problem even just a few years ago. Now, people that I thought would never speak the way they do, I hear them using language that just shocks me and honestly sometimes sickens me. So I stand against that. Why, again, is it all happening? Information warfare, folks. How does all this stuff work? Well, I can tell you that, you know, I showed you the intelligence reports. I showed you that um, intelligence expert who talked about foreign governments injecting their influence into our political processes, into our culture. We've been having, it's been going on for decades. This cultural Marxism, do you think that this is something that started even within our own country? Maybe, but it's certainly been amplified. They're throwing kerosene on it, aren't they? They have been for a long time. They've made us all ashamed. They've captured our flag here in Canada. Whether it was during the residential schools scandal, when the flag was flown at half staff for I don't know how many weeks, was it like it was well over a month, month and a half, two months, whatever, all across the country. Or whether it's the gay pride flag, which has been replacing the Canadian flag. You tell as soon as I saw that, I was like, come on. That's capture. That's political capture. They've captured our flag on both of those occasions. And Trudeau, I think, you know, he let it happen. He embraced it. So he's got to go. No question in my mind, he's not acting in the best interests of the country. But he's not the ultimate problem. He's just a pawn. It's the people controlling him that we have to go after.
How do we do that? Well, I can tell you, and maybe I need to put this into writing for people because I've talked about this before, but we need financial transparency with all politicians. If you're in political office, we need complete transparency. We need to know where every penny that those politicians make comes from. Every single penny. Complete disclosure financially. No secrets, no offshore accounts, no hiding anything. How much money do they make and where does it come from? What goes in, what goes out? And that goes double for their campaigns and their political organizations and triple for the parties. Their campaign teams, their campaign funds, everything. Every single penny has to be public. Then you beef this thing up with a few changes here and there. And you address Section 1 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in Canada. And you make other changes to the U.S. Constitution as well. To do what? To limit government power. Limit the power of government. When I have these conversations with my socialist friends and my communist friends and my right-wing political friends, I think they just automatically get it wrong because they try to take a direct approach to a solution. They're looking for a magic bullet and they all seem to come up with the same solution in a general sense, which is that we are in trouble because the government is screwing everything up and they're taking our rights away. We are in trouble because the government has too much control over the economy, they say. And uh, and as a result, we're suffering with high inflation. So what's their solution? It's always the same. Tear the government down, tear the system down, burn it all down, and then put the power into the hands of the people, they say. But really what they're talking about is collectivism. What we end up with is a whole lot more government through a highly socialized system, more so than we have now, or a communist government or a fascistic, even Nazi government on the other side. Anyway, you slice it. I don't see anybody sitting here embracing the idea of more democracy. I just see people saying, let's throw it all out. That's not putting power into the hands of the people. Less government. That's the that's the solution. And that just means making a few changes to this constitution that I'm holding up in my hand for those of you just listening on the podcast and not the video. How does it work? Well, you know, it's like information warfare. And there's a lot of money now flowing into this. And this is a highly produced video. I will not even tell you exactly where this is from. Um, I think this is so powerful. And I suspect that this is part of the information war, that this is pure propaganda. This is, this goes right to the heart of the matter. 
just like the 1619 project, this rewrites history. But it does it in such a way, this video that I'm about to play for you, that it's done in shadowy ways. It goes into ancient history, rewriting ancient history. It's easy to do that with people because who the heck knows about history from, say, 2,000 years ago? Very few people. But what they're doing is they're really telling you a story about World War II, Nazi Germany, and America. They're just changing the names of the countries and the movements and spinning it up with this narrative about ancient civilizations. It's the same kind of technique that was used all through the pandemic, in my opinion. And I have a lot of evidence to back it up. Same technique used all through the pandemic in order to subvert the population, to redirect the population and indoctrinate us all into a particular way of thinking that has led us to this very point, this flashpoint, where we are now witnessing the war between Israel, Palestine, Hamas, Hezbollah, and it's escalating to include other countries as well. Let me run this for you. I'm going to comment on it briefly as it goes along. This is about a place called Tartaria. The Tartarian Empire, which was once all over the world, is now nothing but a lost civilization. Some say it was wiped away by the New World Order in a massive genocide. Wait a minute. So it's an ancient civilization wiped away by the New World Order? If it's a New World Order, how can it be that it was there thousands of years ago when Tartaria apparently existed? Anyway. Let us continue. You see, it's conflating old language with new language. While others believe it's a fringe conspiracy theory with no backing to it. I'll so address the critics head on before they even say anything. Ha ha ha. Some people will just dismiss this as a conspiracy theory. Ha ha ha. Discredit the critics before they even speak simply by acknowledging it up front. What they're doing here, folks, and this is a very sophisticated technique, is they are disarming you. I told you the other day that research was done back in the 1950s. And as a media guy, I was already aware of this from a long time ago. They checked the brainwaves of test subjects watching television in the earliest days of television and realized that television renders people into a very, uh, a state of impressionable that makes people impressionable. You watch TV, you absorb the information. You do not really participate in it and communicate back quite so much. The point is it's, it's almost like a form of hypnosis and it makes people very susceptible to suggestion. Well, that's what's going on here as well. You're watching a video and you are very susceptible to suggestion. So he is addressing any questions you might have, anyone, and, and, and addressing opposition to what he's about to tell you right off the top in a way that just disarms you and tells you that everything you've been told in the past is a lie. 
All the evidence I've examined tells me that Tartaria did exist and that the powers that be spent a lot of energy, money, and power in getting us to believe it never did. The framework of our fundamental beliefs has been built upon a massive lie. And this orchestration of our false history has in turn created an oppositional force that assumes its core identity is being attacked when presented with the findings in these films. The information to follow is not to attack, it's to unravel. So he's, he's not attacking anyone. He's, he's just there to unravel the truth. Only he has the truth. Obviously, everything you've been told, everything we've been told for well over a century longer, maybe even thousands of years, everything you know is a lie. Do you really believe that? Do you think that everything you've been told is a lie? Every single thing? I don't believe that. Not for a minute. No, I think that there's a lot of truth in my history. I think that there has been a lot of effort to rewrite it in recent years. In a very real way, generations have been programmed to see the world inaccurately. And with tools such as MKUltra, there's a sector of our public that will fight to the death for what they believe without ever questioning it. My job is to provide you with information that will assist in the unraveling of what may very well have been the greatest psychological operation known to man. A worldwide psyop on humanity, or as Morpheus puts it, a prison for your mind. In a very real way. The yeah, there is a huge psyop going on and they do want to imprison your mind and that's what he's doing right now. This video is the PSYOP. Part of it. A major part of it. And the reason I say a major part is because these guys, they've got funding. This production, this took time. This took money. And these guys are sitting there telling you that they have the truth and everything you've ever been taught is a lie. They disarm you right up front using their psychological warfare techniques, their PSYOP. Yeah, they know what MKUltra is. They're using those techniques on you right now. I'm just disrupting the pattern. I'm here saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, before you go all the way down the rabbit hole here, folks, be aware of what it is you're really watching. The person warning you about being mind-controlled is trying to control your mind. Matrix is what we're living in. And the powers that have created our world are fighting tooth and nail to keep it theirs. Because of the internet, Information has spread just as fast as the cancer that has grown to enslave humanity. Yeah. And they're using the internet right now to do exactly that. Not to say that you're not getting it from the other side too, but that's what this video is. There's a whole series of these videos. If you watch these, <laughs> um, I pray for you. I pray.
because they've got the methods down. This is sophisticated psychological warfare. That's how I view this. This is my film review of this psychological operation. Information is vital to knowing who we are, where we come from, and where we're headed. You might ask, how do we escape this matrix with knowledge and information? By discovering the truth, the truth shall set us free. Hmm. Yeah, what's the truth? Is this the truth? We hear discussions about predictive programming. That's why he's making specific references to The Matrix, the movie, something you're very familiar with. Conflating, connecting, creating familiarity so you're comfortable with the information, putting it on a plane where you can easily understand it and then absorb the information that he presents to you because it's that familiarity that further disarms you psychologically so that you absorb that information. And then the imagery that they're using, whether it was the picture of Jesus previous to that, which further disarms you and makes you open, particularly if you're a person of religious conviction, where now the use of this dove to further disarm you, to make you feel comfortable, that this is not a threat, that he's not here to attack, he's just here to unravel the truth in a peaceful way with this dove. And yet what they're doing here is drilling down into your brain, preparing you for the message that they are about to deliver. This is the PSYOP. I invite you to explore the hidden truths of our history so that it may unlock the infinite possibilities of our greater tomorrow. This begins now by uncovering what was once and will be again the great Tartarian Empire. It will rise from the ashes. What will rise? The Tartarian Empire or what? Something else maybe? What is it that he is referring to here? What? What is Tartaria really? Tartaria originally pronounced Tataria without the first R, is the name of the pre-Mongolian empire that originated in Northern Asia before spanning the entire Northern Hemisphere. Great Tartaria was the largest empire during its time and would still have been the largest empire today. The outside tips over as I suppose, and we can therefore run round corners Tartaria, a once thriving civilization that... Okay, so if it's that old, I'll tell you that, that invention, the dinosphere, that car cycle thingy-majiggy that he just showed you, that didn't exist then. There's conflation going on here. This is a bunch of bunk. This is rewriting history and substituting the name. There's substitution taking place here subject substitution in order to confuse you they're really telling you a tale of something much more recent this isn't really about tartaria tartaria is a metaphor exemplified the pinnacle of greatness and potential of humanity is no longer present today but its vestiges have been left behind 
as clues and crumbs for future generations to discover and question what happened. Tartaria had some of the most brilliant, fascinating, and powerful spiritual beings. With their extraordinary way of being, they invented and discovered technologies that would make them... Holy smokes! What am I seeing over there in the corner? It couldn't be. Could it? Is it? What's that symbol over there in the bottom corner? It looks very familiar to me. I've seen it somewhere before. Um, yeah, maybe something from Germany, maybe circa, you know, late 1930s, mid 1940s, early 40s. Could be. I think I've seen it on a flag. Just saying. Um, you know, great futuristic technologies developed this great society. Yeah. Um, like what? The Hindenburg. And appear like futuristic that travelers that landed in a distant past. Their culture was robust and magnificent, their government equally as so. It consisted of independent nations ruled by qualified princes, elected by local council of wise men and counseled by women. Their territories had flat- wait, wait, elected, by, elected by local councils of wise men and women? That's not full democracy. That's essentially like the Politburo or I don't know, what the hell is that? Anyway, it's it's not a free and democratic society in the classical liberal sense or in the Western sense. It's uh, referenced as a democracy, but it certainly is not. Do you see where this is going, folks? Flags, maps, and most notably their architecture, which remnants still exist today, prove that modern technology advancements are nothing in comparison to what they built not only because of its beauty, but because of the fact that their buildings were made to capture and distribute free energy all over the world. Could you imagine our world today if it had free energy? Could you imagine free means of travel anywhere at any time? How about free healing in a world where disease was unlikely? It's difficult to imagine because we live in a world where massive corporations are dependent upon charging us to receive what God has already gifted us. Gas, electricity, medicine, food. Oh, I get it. So, free energy. Free energy. And it's corporations that are blocking your access to free energy. So what's the solution? Well, we've been hearing that, haven't we, just in recent days. Uh, one of the people suggesting a solution to that is uh, the guy who was bringing his Nazi flag on here, his swastika. He wants to nationalize natural resources. Nationalize. What's that mean? It means... <laughs> it means the government controls it all. And again, that is, uh, that's either fascism, Nazism, or on the other side, communism. That's what you get. 
government-controlled industries. No free market. And why is it free? Well, they'll tell you it's free because they'll say, well, the government is of the people, by the people, for the people. But do they mean it in the American sense? Uh, not when they're talking about nationalizing industries. That means taking over industries, just confiscating the property. Property rights go out the window. They say that property rights are not real. The government is a construct and that everything belongs to the people, but it's really ultimately the people at the top of government who end up controlling it. And therefore, I would argue owning it and deciding who gets what. And then they distribute the wealth in a controlled manner through a controlled and centrally planned economy. That's what they're peddling here. They're peddling socialism. Free energy, what they mean is nationalized energy industry. It's deception. They're selling you utopia. A utopia that throughout history has never been achieved through these social, socialist, communist, fascistic, Nazi, authoritarian experiments. If you control energy, you control the people and you control the world. Yeah, well, you know what I, you know who I really don't want to control? My energy, my government, because it doesn't matter what the government touches, they screw it all up. Beware people who do not speak plainly. How did it get this way? Before we explore more of the brilliance of Tartarian technology, let's visit our recent past to first understand how Tartaria was erased from history and who were the ones doing it. We'll start at the beginning of the end, the 18th century, when the Romanov Empire conquered many Tartarian territories, leading to the creation of the United States. And lastly, their massive effort to hide and erase Tartaria from humanity's conscious collective. What happened to 1776? The Tartarian Empire, thought to have belonged to just Eastern Russia, actually inhabited most, if not all, of the world. The Tartars, as they were known, carried their vast empire from Russia, China, to even the Far East, the Americas. North America, to be specific, was an extension of the Siberian American Horde, also known as Moscow Tartary. You see, Tartaria's territories were everywhere and they were labeled as such. Petite Tartary, Eastern Tartary, <laughs> Russian, Moscow, Chinese, and Mongol Tartary. Ah. Moscow Tartary was completely conquered by the Romanovs in the middle of the 19th century. The Romanov name is due to their claimed descent from the Roman Empire, as they saw Moscow as the Third Rome. The Romanovs were in control of Russia for just a few centuries and ended in the early 20th century at the hands of Bolshevik secret police who captured and murdered the Russian Tsar Nicholas II along with his entire family. Taking over Moscow Tartary, which the Romanovs eventually did, made them a world superpower. 
The conflict between Moscow Tartary and Romanov Russia ended in the second half of the 18th century with the famous peasant war against Pugachev. Pugachev was a leader of a series of successful rebellions. Before you listen to any more of this, like, do you know anything about this history? Like, really be honest with yourself. If you don't, then it would be pretty easy for him to just convince you of pretty much anything, wouldn't it? It's against the Russian Empire during the reign of Catherine the Great. At this time, the Romanovs strived to conquer the Siberian-American horde at all cost. They understood very well that the Russian people didn't support them, and many would prefer the regime of Tobolsk to the Romanovs. Tobolsk was the center of Russian colonization of Siberia when an ally of the Tsar of Tobolsk, Turkey, signed a peace treaty with the Romanovs. They essentially betrayed Pugachev and the Siberian army. What was once a promising rebellion ended in 1775, when Pugachev's own men captured him and sent him to Moscow to be murdered. That is why the Romanovs turned the very existence of their Siberian neighbor to a national secret. To preserve this secret, the infamous secret police was created, where executioners tortured and hung those who knew too much. Pugachev was beheaded on January 21st, 1775. As a result, one year later, the United States of America emerged on May 1st, 1776, where Freemason Adam Washupt established their territorial claims. With the stronghold of the Tartarian Empire conquered, the Romanovs ventured to the Americas as Moscow Tartary. Uh, okay, <clears throat> um, a lot of history rewriting and <sighs> misdirection. Was there and left without any governmental authority. The European emigrants who had settled on the Atlantic seaboard of North America then ventured west. And for decades, they seized the North American territories of Moscow Tartary. The Romanovs went about voraciously slicing up the vast territories of Moscow Tartary and rewriting history in the process. In America, it began... Which is exactly what this guy is doing right now, rewriting history. Began with Alaska, and then Washington and Oregon were ceded to the Romanovs in 1819, while the rest of North America went to the USA. Before this, the influence of Moscow in the Americas was massive. Note how many U.S. cities were named Moscow in the early 1800s. Interesting, isn't it? This <laughs> Romanov takeover of the inhabitants of the Americas has been beautifully but incorrectly narrated in Hollywood films about the very noble white frontiersmen and the very savage Indians. So did they hide the truth about Native American Indians? Well, of course, because they were really Mongolian descendants of Tartaria. Let's unravel some more hidden truths about the origins of America and explore more in depth who the Native Americans actually were. Initially, the territories of Canada, United States, and Mexico 
were known as India Superior and were populated by a previously advanced American civilization called the Moors. The Moors are who we know as Tartarians. They were responsible for the building of Gothic architecture in America and around the world. Interestingly, they were also known as the Berber Indians, all one and the same people, as they all originate from the Mur people of India Superior that had previously civilized the world. This map is very significant because it demonstrates that the Americas are Asia Major, Asia Proper, also known as the Orient or the East or another word for it, India Superior. So what language did Tartarians speak? Well, the universal language spoken throughout the Tartarian Empire was Arabic and Sanskrit. Therefore, the original Moors were likely Islamic. Islam was prominent in America and had a massive influence on it. There are a total of 565 names, 484 in America and 81 in Canada, of villages, towns, cities, mountains, lakes, and rivers that are etymologically Arabic. These names were designated by locals long before the arrival of Columbus. Many of these names are in fact the same names of Islamic places. Mecca. Medina in Idaho and also in New York, Medina in Hazen in North Dakota, Medina in Ohio, Medina in Tennessee and in Texas, Medina and Arva in Ontario. Ontario? Okay. Arva? <laughs> Arva is a teeny tiny little town. There might be more than one. I, I it's it's just north of the city where I grew up in in Canada in Ontario, Ontario. <laughs> I don't know. There's a handful of people who live in Arva. There's a flour mill there. Don't blink or you'll miss it when you drive by. It's that small, and it's just outside my hometown of London, Ontario, Canada. The name Arva has its roots in Latin, which means fertile, because it's a farming community. But hey, who knew, right, that North America really has its roots in Islam? Isn't that kind of weird? Who would have thunk? See? First Nations people still have some claim to the land, I guess, through this version of history. But so, too, do people of, say, Muslim faith. We're just occupiers. This particular propaganda film tries to take people down a slightly different path. It's still socialistic. And I say a different, slight, a slightly different path than, say, the 1619 Project. It goes back even further in time to stake a claim, many claims, land claims, and otherwise. Why? Why? Motives not always readily apparent, but you can see that this leads to extreme disruption. 
if we keep playing identity politics, we keep digging deep down into the past to discredit the system, tear the system down, and engage in the decolonization movement, where we're portraying European settlers in North America as colonizers, occupiers. You see where all this goes, right? Where are we supposed to go? Why this narrative? This is not coming from the neoliberal woke side, I don't think. This is coming from the other side still. Maybe even a different side. But this is directed at QAnon supporters, believers, the faithful. It's directed at them primarily, but also at the larger population more broadly. It's well-financed. It's slick. And it is steeped in a lot of lies that wrap themselves around nuggets of truth, making it very confusing and very convincing for people who don't know much about their history. And I have to confess, I don't know everything to know about history going back thousands of years. There's too much information for one person to observe. You could spend a lifetime studying such history. But I can see propaganda. I know propaganda when I see it. And I know enough about history to know that there's a whole lot of lying going on in this video. And I see the techniques they're using to disarm people. And I know a lot of people have already watched this. I'm not even going to tell you the name of the video because I'm trying to insulate you from it. It's out there. I'm not censoring it. I've run some of it for you. I've given you my take on it, but I'm not going to promote it because I don't think this is free speech. I think this is malicious and dangerous. Because while they, he sits there and says that he is not there to attack, he is there to unravel, I say that he has another motive. He is there to disrupt. And he is also not just a film producer, the narrator of this, the producer of this. He is a known political activist who may or may not even be working on the best, working in the best interests of or as or <laughs> toward the same common goals as the political movement that he's involved in. He may simply be there engaging in this activity to subvert and eventually destroy the very movement that he's involved in from within. Because everything about this results in self-destruction. It scares the crap out of me. Because it's so effective. You see the crowds in the streets. You see the massive protests. You see the mass immigration. You see the governments putting people with diametrically opposing political ideologies right next to each other in, you can call them 15 minute cities if you want. That might be an apt description. I pointed out that the federal government in Canada just came out with $1.8 billion last week to create communities with extreme densification 
in order to accommodate the massive numbers of immigrants flooding into Canada, a country that I am quite certain I'm, I know is in play in this third world war that is at the center of this information war. The Moors, the true first inhabitants of this country have bloodlines going back to the earliest civilizations that practiced Islam, Muslim, like what, what? In Canada and North America, why would they be talking about something like that at a time like this? When in Canada, Justin Trudeau just announced that he's quite willing to take another 500,000 refugees from Palestine. At a time when we're seeing conflicts in the street that are actually now resulting in deaths. When we've seen a rise in terrorist attacks on domestic soil. Not just in Palestine, not just in Israel, not just in the Middle East. at a time when we're seeing First Nations pushing pushing back against the United Nations Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples, UN Declaration, ramping up land claims, glomming on to rising distrust in the system in Canada and the United States, especially in Canada. All of this is happening at a time when property rights are being threatened, our very way of existence, Western civilization, everything we've come to know, everything we've come to know, rather. Coming at a time when our neoliberal woke Politicians and bureaucrats and community leaders, people on that side of the political spectrum, stand up and say, at every meeting now, we want to acknowledge that we stand on the lands of the fill-in-the-blank First Nations communities, tribes, at a time when our governments have been apologizing for... Every act committed against First Nations peoples, maybe not every act, but apologizing. Indeed, I would say it is for every act because that's what that is. Every time they stand up and say, we acknowledge that we're standing on the lands of, we're the occupiers. They've surrendered after exerting control and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't support First Nations land claims. I just acknowledge them in such a way that certainly here in Canada, where I live, I say that the government needs to honor treaties, agreements that were put into place with First Nations across the country in order to keep the peace, in order to forge a better future for everyone so that we can live together in harmony. 
Unfortunately, some of those treaties have not been honored properly. The governments have not always lived up to their obligations under those treaties, and we need to do that. And we have been working toward that. But what this video does, what this political movement is doing, is sowing the seeds of further unrest, division. And it lays the groundwork for more aggressive land claims. Not just for First Nations peoples, but I would assert, I would suggest, for the immigrants coming here. This in itself represents a threat to First Nations peoples in this country because they have sovereign nations within a sovereign nation already protected by the agreements, the treaties, protected by precedent, legal precedent through both natural common law and the laws that we have here in Canada. You throw all of that away. You tear down that system. There's nothing left. You're starting from scratch. And then you're getting into what this video asserts, which is that it's not just First Nations peoples. It's the Moors. It's the, the people of Islam. It's the Muslims. They have the true bloodlines that tie back into the lands of North America. And we're just the occupiers. That's one version of history that is being rewritten right now. And they're feeding it to you. And so you have something else to feel guilty about now. And ultimately, you're going to have to pay that back. There will be reparations. Indeed, you might even be forced to leave. You may end up finding yourself stateless, homeless. Where will we go? If we are kicked out of the country, where? Because it seems very clear to me that as the refugees from the Middle East are moved out of Palestine, places like Canada, in particular Canada, we're sitting here with our arms open, trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing. We're saying, yes, send us those people in need. Let us help. Let us help. And if we weren't doing that, you know what we would be accused of? We would be accused of being racist. Just like when that boat showed up prior to World War II from Germany with all the Jews on board, and it was going from country to country to country. And Canada said, no. We've had too much immigration already at that time, and we can't take them. And so even today, Canada is accused of being a racist country because Canada made the same decision that many other countries, including the United States, made at the time, and other countries too. And they went back. 
And many of those Jews died in concentration camps. And Canada has since apologized for that. But you see, if we don't take the Palestinians now, we're racist. If we we didn't take the Jews before, we were racist. But we have taken a lot of Jewish people, and now we have a lot of you know, a very large Jewish community. We've also taken Ukrainians. We took Germans after the war. We've taken people from all sides. But now we're damned for doing that. Why? Well, because we took some of those Germans in. Those Nazis. If you have even one, even one, that's one too many. So we're being damned for having done that over 70 years ago, 78. And we're being damned for it today. Because where did that guy show up? That 98-year-old Nazi in Parliament. Was that an accident? I think not. There he is. Ukrainian. And there's Zelensky and Trudeau. And we all know what happened because of that. Well, Ukraine, you know, when that war first started, we sat here and I said, yes, there are some Nazis in Ukraine. And that's a problem. And we shouldn't be supporting that. But I know that not every person in Ukraine is a Nazi. It's not about the people. But somehow it always seems to become that, doesn't it? And now as a result of that war, we've seen well over 400,000 Ukrainians killed. Soldiers and civilians. Are they all Nazis? Are they terrible Nazi people because they love their country and they have, and they want, and they embrace nationalism? They're proud of the country? There's a strain of nationalism that is very dangerous. White nationalism, ethno-nationalism, whether it's white or some other race, ideology, base on the ideas of blood and soil. Blood and soil. As we've seen in the past. That's dangerous. That's dangerous nationalism. But is it a sin to love your country? I say no. Every country is unique. Every country is different. Every country is defined by its people. And I think people should have a right to self-determination. This is twisted and sick in Canada, the United States. We're damned if we do, damned if we don't. Do we take in those Palestinians? Well, yeah, let's do that because that's the right thing to do. We need to help. And people are out in the streets right now protesting because the Palestinians are viewed as the oppressed. And we've all been fed this line, right? They're just, all they have to throw is rocks. No, they have missiles and Hamas is, seems to be pretty well equipped to fight back because there are some Israeli soldiers being killed. 
And do I support what's going on on the other side? No, because civilians are being killed. People, civilians. Don't like that either. Not saying I have all the solutions, but I can see that there are problems on both sides. And here we go. This is information warfare, right? Designed to get you all out into the streets and fighting. All of us. And I say, hmm, it's a no-win scenario. Because if you take the Palestinians, and then among them, you know what you're going to find? Probably a few Nazis. Maybe more than a few. And it's not going to matter what happens when we take them in. A lot of them are going to resent us. Because our attitude here in Canada has generally been, well, we and in the West, when we bring in refugees who are fleeing the horrors of war or famines or other atrocities, and we take them in, we're like, well, aren't you grateful for being here? Isn't it great for you to be here? And I suppose I would be very grateful if that were me and I was given a new start in a new world. But you know, when you give things to people, just give them things, they tend not to appreciate it as much as things that they've actually worked for. And when they've been, and that's not to say that not everybody who comes here is appreciative, but some people, they tend not to appreciate things when they're just handed things, right? And in fact, if it's being handed to you by someone that you think has been oppressing you, you can really resent it. Because now you feel it's like, well, you blew up my house or you're responsible for having my house blown up because you helped fund it. And now I come here and you're giving me a welfare check and a shoebox to live in in a densified 15-minute city where the population density is so tight that I'm living next door to, say, a Jewish person that I hate because... Their cousin blew up my house with the money that you provided. And then what you expect, what do you think is going to happen in a scenario like that, folks? Well, we've got a, another problem on our hands, don't we? Because that video that we just watched, that is laying the foundation for a land claim equal in weight to the land claim coming from the First Nations peoples who were here, as far as I know, first. And you think I'm joking about that or that I'm making this stuff up or that this doesn't have legs? It's not getting, yes, it is. It's getting a lot of traction already. I can show you. I can prove it. I just have to find the clip here. Oh, let me show you. Not this one, not that one. Here it is right here. This is, uh, yeah, talks about the true natives of the land. Here we go. Palestinia. Palestina. True natives of the land. We 
Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. And then I have I have people all around me who say, you know, that they want peace. <laughs> they want a peaceful solution. And then they get out into the streets and they protest. And what do I hear them chanting? That is only one solution. Intifada revolution. They don't even know what they're saying. There is only one solution, Intifada Revolution. Oh, it rhymes. It's got a good rhythm to it. Must be true, whatever it is. Do you even know what Intifada means, man? You're talking about a revolution. Like a real revolution. And as Douglas Murray pointed out, we've already seen some of that kind of activity. We've had it. We don't want any more of it. We don't want people blowing themselves up at concerts. That's intifada. And people right now are out in the streets protesting, supporting a worldwide intifada. Is that what you want? Are you sure you really, are you really sure you want to tear the system down? What are you going to get on the other side, folks? Intifada revolution. Here's so many people calling for a revolution. <laughs> Collectivism. From one side or the other, and it seems like they all want the same thing. Isn't it funny? You know, the very people who are upset about the appearance of that 98-year-old Ukrainian Nazi, who had previously been looked at, by the way, by the Duchesne Commission in Canada, and had previously been looked at before that, before being allowed into Canada. And had been living among us without killing anybody for a long time. Not that I'm making excuses for what he may or may not have done. I'm just saying the guy is entitled to a day in court at a minimum, even at 98 years old. I don't believe in stringing anybody up in public or convicting anyone of anything without allowing them to have some sort of a trial. And I'm not talking about a trial in the court of public opinion. But how convenient that was to have that guy in parliament. Hmm. While our prime minister, who clearly is not acting in the best interests of the country, was sitting there applauding. And then the 338 MPs, well, 337 plus the prime minister. And Zelensky. Ukraine, also applauding, like trained SEALs, who clearly didn't know what the hell they were really clapping for. And then I've had people say, well, it's the best thing that could have happened because it shows what the country is really about. Is it really? Yeah. Tell that to the Jewish people who live in Canada. Tell that to, you know, a lot of other people who live in this country. 
And then everybody wants to throw out all 338 members of parliament because they clapped. Well, they all knew. Did they? No, they didn't. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. They're not that smart. They're idiots for having done it. Some of them probably are fascists and Nazis, but I wouldn't say all 338. And I don't think it rises to the level where we have to destroy the entire system. But how convenient for those who want to do that. And how convenient it is for those who seek to destroy the system. Because now suddenly we have both sides seeking to do exactly the same thing. We have people who are upset with the Nazis who want to tear the system down. They're anti-Nazi, anti-left-wing, neoliberal woke. And yet we have people on the other side also trying to tear the system down. It seems like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And then with these Palestinian refugees, got to take them in or you're racist. But if we take them in and there's a bunch of Nazis in there and we've seen some of those Nazi flags being flown in Gaza and at the protests where some of these people embrace Nazi ideology, we've shown you right on this program, there are Nazis among them. A lot of Nazi ideology in there. Even a lot of Hitler worship. We showed you there's even a store, Laurie pointed out on the program. There's a store called Hitler 1 and Hitler 2 in Gaza Strip. In Gaza Strip, yeah. In Gaza, yeah. If it's still there, if it hasn't been bombed, them, two locations. Clothing store. So if we take the Nazis, then we're pro-Nazi, right? So you can bet your boots we're going to get be held accountable for that down the road. And if we don't take them now, we're going to be racist. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. And then you bring them here and they're upset because we funded the war. And we've supported Israel and we're responsible really for the creation of Israel. Both directly and indirectly and in supporting it all these years over many decades. So what the hell are we going to do? What's the right thing to do? Do you take them or don't take them? Reject them all because there might be some Nazis, maybe some terrorists. Or take them all in. Hope for the best. Assume that they're just going to integrate into society in a peaceful way and be so grateful that they wouldn't ever act out in a violent way at all. Do you think that's going to happen? Has that happened so far? I think we've been pretty lucky so far. But not entirely. We've seen acts of terrorism on Canadian soil. And in the United States. And we've seen a rise in mental illness. And we've seen people triggered, I think, through these psychological operations involving a mix, I think, of drugs and psychological manipulation through the internet. Psyops. And they can target a specific person with one video multiple times on the internet because they have the power to do it. And who is they? I keep saying they. It's shadowy, isn't it? Is it our government? Yes. Is it the CIA? Yes. Is it CSIS? Yes. Is it Russian intelligence? Yes. Is it China? Yes. Is it Iran? Yes. It's all of them. But who's really responsible for a lot of this stuff? Well, it depends. You look here, you look there. Who benefits? Who benefits? Who benefits? Who benefits the most from this? Who really benefits from this 
unrest in the Middle East. Who, who benefits when we're forced to take all of these refugees, when it further destabilizes our country? I would submit to you, it's Russia, it's China, it's Iran. And don't take any government at face value when they say they want peace. Don't take any of it at face value. It's all strategic. What did Stalin do? Before Hitler attacked him, he had a non-aggression pact, made a deal with Hitler. They started to carve up Europe. He took half of Poland. Hitler took the other half. They were best buds. Well, maybe not best buds. They didn't really like each other. But for strategic reasons, they had an agreement. They started carving up Europe. And what did Stalin do when Hitler was invading different countries? He sat back and he let the other, he let the Hitler, he, he, he let the other, let the two sides fight, destroy each other until he really needed to get involved. Smart. What's going on right now? Let them fight. Say that you're the country of peace. And in many respects, China has taken a leading role in peace efforts and Russia as well. But is it genuine? Probably, maybe, but it's also strategic. And where is a lot of this unrest coming from? It's not coming just from Palestine itself or Hezbollah. It's also coming from Iran. It is because they're supporting it financially and with weapons, just as we in the West do it the other way around. We even fund both sides and send in weapons because we're idiots and our leaders are corrupt. But there are pragmatic reasons for a lot of these things as well. Doesn't mean that we throw out the entire system. Because we still have a voice. We still can vote. There's still something there. At least we have that. Get rid of that and what do you have? Nothing. You'll own nothing and be probably not very happy. That's a lie. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Damned if you take the refugees, damned if you don't. Damned if you support Israel so that they aren't literally pushed into the sea. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means force them right into the into the sea wipe them off the face of the planet worldwide intifada so who do you support well both sides want to wipe each side wants to wipe each other out you support this side or that side you're going to be guilty of something and we're seeing countries some countries stepping up saying they want to hold benjamin netanyahu responsible, accountable. He'll be charged with war crimes. People on the other side saying those guys are going to be charged with war crimes. If you get involved, man, on, in at, at any level, you might be guilty of war crimes. You take those Palestinian refugees, you reject those Palestinian refugees. Either way, somebody's not going to be happy. The Dutch government supplying parts for the F-35 fighter jets for Israel. And concerns that maybe by doing that, they're contributing to the war crimes, but they're supplying the parts anyway. 
Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Reminds me of the Kobayashi Maru. That's why it's on the thumbnail tonight. On some of our channels. What's the Kobayashi Maru? Star Trek, man. Star Trek. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. It's an exercise for Starfleet. Entirely relevant to this conversation because it's a no-win scenario. And cadets being trained for command at the beginning of Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. It opens on a scene with Kirstie Alley sitting in the captain's chair. <laughs> and Kirstie Alley is uh, approaching the neutral zone where there's a ship, Kobayashi Maru, in distress, under attack, Klingons. Ship's not supposed to be in there. Have to rescue the ship. And ironically, this is a movie that really focuses on Khan. Khan Noonien Singh, played by Ricardo Maltaban, who represents a superior, almost Aryan-type race of supermen. Genetically superior, genetically engineered. Sounds pretty Nazi-like. But anyway, the Kobayashi Maru is the no-win scenario. And it's designed so that you cannot win. Anyone who has seen that movie, or even the more recent version of Star Trek in theaters, will know what I'm talking about. Most of you probably do. I skipped over a thing here, but... Uh, here it is here. Great movie. My favorite Star Trek movie of all time. Going to run a little bit of this. I'm going to get hit nailed with a copyright strike. But in fact, you know what I'm going to do before I run this Star Trek clip and wrap up with this stuff tonight? I am going to dump off YouTube. So here's, I'm going to put the... Uh, Link to Rumble in the description, in the chat, so that you guys can follow this over there to Rumble. So I can run the Kobayashi Maru clip for you. Okay, here's the... Here's the there's the link to Rumble. Over to Rumble. Rumble, watch us on Rumble. I'm going to run this clip over on Rumble. Well, there you go. It's in the chat. On the YouTube channels, I'm going to dump off those channels in just a moment. When we come back, I'm going to run this clip. So stay with me. Don't go away. The best is really yet to come on this special Maverick News broadcast. We are Mavericks. We say no to the Trudeau and Biden New World Order. 
and to bugs. Because bugs are creepy and gross. And people should not eat bugs. Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, I'm back, and uh, we are going to dump off YouTube now. So please, folks, if you're watching on YouTube, go join us over on Rumble. Rumble, 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 Rumble. The best stuff is right around the corner here now as I take Rumble away. And goodbye, YouTube. Thank you for allowing us to broadcast on your platform tonight. Such a privilege. And goodbye to this YouTube channel. Goodbye. And that ought to do it. Okay. All right. Let's keep this rolling. Here's the Kobayashi Maru. Captain's log. Stardate 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra, Section 14. Coordinates, 22, 87, 4. Approaching neutral zone, all systems normal and functioning. Leaving section 14 for section 15. Stand by. Project parabolic course to avoid entering neutral zone. Aye, Captain. Course change projected. Captain, I'm getting something on the distress channel. On speakers. This is the Kobayashi Maru. 19 graves out of Altair 6. We have struck a barbitic mine and have lost all power. Our hull is penetrated and we have sustained many casualties. This is the Starship Enterprise. Your message is breaking up. Can you give us your coordinates? Repeat, this is the Starship... Enterprise, our position is Gamma Hydra, Section 10. In the neutral zone. Hull penetrated. Life support systems failing. Can you assist us, Enterprise? Can you assist Data on Kobayashi Maru. Subject vessel is third class neutronic fuel carrier crew of 8,300 passengers. Damn. Mr. Sulu, plot an intercept course. May I remind the captain that the starship enters the zone? I'm aware of my responsibilities, mister. Estimating two minutes to intercept. Now entering the neutral zone. Warning, we have entered neutral zone. We are now in violation of treaty, Captain. Stand by transporter room ready to beam survivors aboard. Captain, I've lost their signal. Alert, sensors indicate three Klingon cruisers bearing 316 Mark IV closing fast. Visual. Battle stations, activate shields. Shields activated. Inform the Klingons we are on a rescue mission. They're jamming all the frequencies, Captain. Klingons on attack course and closing. Klingons on attack Mr. Sulu, get us out of here. I'll try, Captain. Alert. Klingon torpedoes activated. Alert. Evasive action. Engineering. Damage report. Main energizer hit, Captain. 
Engage auxiliary power. Prepare to return fire. Shield's ah! collapsing, Captain. Fire all phasers. No power to the weapons, Captain. Captain, it's no use. We're dead in space. Activate escape pods. Send out the log boy. All hands abandon ship. Repeat. All hands abandon ship. All right, open her up. Any suggestions, Admiral? Prayer, Mr. Savick. The Klingons don't take prisoners. Lights. Captain? Trainees, to the briefing room. Position, here lies, sir. Is that all you gotta say? What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. Well, Mr. Savick, are you gonna stay with the sinking ship? Permission to speak candidly, sir. Granted. I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. And why not? Because there was no way to win. A no-win situation, sir. This season, this... Oh, hang on. Hang on. More to come, more to come. Stay with us. Here we go. Here we go. Hang on. Here we go. No win scenario is something every commander might face. The possibility every commander may face. Has that never occurred to you? No, sir. It is not. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? As I indicated, Admiral, that thought had not occurred to me. Well, now you have something new to think about. Carry on. And here's how Sir, Kirk dealt with it. May I ask you a question? What's on your mind, Lieutenant? The Kobayashi Maru, sir. Are you asking me if we're playing out that scenario now? On the test, sir. Will you tell me what you did? I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? You cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Where is... Me either. Me either. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. But I do believe sometimes the best move is to simply not play. Not their game, not on their terms, not by their rules. Who are they? It's all of them. Don't engage. Don't fall into the traps. Don't do counterproductive things. Don't react in a knee-jerk fashion. Think. 
don't take the red pill. Don't take the blue pill. Both are an illusion. Because both sides are lying to you. Or they're deceiving you, which is even worse, because they're engaging in not free speech, malicious speech. They're not being transparent. They're not telling you what they really are, who they really are. You remember that. And now you're armed. Rearmed. You've got your defensive shields up. Now you know. They're all lying to you. It's not like the government's been lying to you forever. Therefore, the other people over here must be telling me the truth. No, not necessarily. And I don't think that everything we've been taught, folks, is a lie. I don't believe that either. It's a gray area. Don't let them manipulate you. We need to be very careful right now. Because we've been forced into a position where we are tr they're trying to force us to take a side. They're pushing us into a no-win scenario. Kobayashi Maru. I know that we still have some freedom here. The reason I know it is because we do have chaos. That means we have some free speech. Unfortunately, a lot of the chaos is coming from people who are abusing that right because they're engaging in malicious speech and deception. They're using it. They're weaponizing it against us. And they're using us as their soldiers, getting us to do their dirty work. Just like war games, right? The only winning move is to not play because they've just got us playing tic-tac-toe. Can't win. Kobayashi Maru. Can't win. Unless you know what's going on and you change the conditions of the test. Stick with me, folks. Stick with this channel. I don't accept the no-win scenario. There's a better way forward. And tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, our quest for truth and solutions will continue. Thank you, everyone, for spending the night here with me, with the Maverick family. Catch you tomorrow on the flip side.
This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.